Welcome to The Next Track, a podcast about how people listen to music today. I'm Doug Adams. And I'm Kirk McElhern. You can find episode show notes, past episode archives, and listener discussions at our website, thenexttrack.com. And in between episodes, follow us on Twitter at NextTrackCast. You know, I never owned a Sony Walkman, ever. I owned portable cassette decks of all different shapes and size, but I never actually owned an authentic Sony Walkman. I owned Sony cassette decks. They were the best made for a long time. For, you know, for a long time, you buy a Sony reel-to-reel deck or a cassette deck because they had perfected the miniaturization and the small parts worked really, really well. And, uh, but when the Walkman came out in 1979, it's 40 years this year, I was in college, and if I recall, the price of a Walkman was like $150, $200, and I think, I think that was my rent for a month. So I didn't know anybody who had one, and I don't remember seeing much of them unless I left campus and happened to see them. But a lot of college students I knew did not, most of the college students I knew, didn't own one. We sure read about them and sure saw them uh, in uh, in magazines and advertising, but I don't think anybody ever owned one. And then finally, when I had an opportunity to get one, I didn't buy a Sony. I bought a Philips or something. I had quite a different experience. I actually had one of the precursors to the Sony Walkman. The Pressman. The Pressman, which is technically the TCS 300. I'll put a bunch of links in the show notes with some web pages showing this and other Sony devices. I've been looking into this. So the Pressman was Sony had had for since the early 70s a number of let's call them portable cassette players for example the TCD5 was kind of like a field recording device it had dual RCA jacks to put two microphones or a microphone and instrument in the TCD5 Pro had XLR jacks they had VU meters on the front really cool you know with that yellowish tint on them and so the Pressman was Sony's device that was designed for reporters and for business people who were dictating. The model that I had, the TCS 300, allowed you to rewind and cue. So press the rewind button while you were playing, like like a dictaphone. It also had a little speaker in it so you could hear what you were saying. So you didn't even need the headphones to dictate. So I got this, I'm thinking sometime in 1978, I bought it used. And you'll see in the links in the show notes, it was pretty big compared to the size of the cassette. There had been an earlier portable dictaphone model with two AA batteries, but the TCS 300 had four. So it had this sort of battery holder you could slide out. You could even buy another battery holder. So imagine you're a journalist on the road, you need extra battery packs. And it weighed like a brick. And I got this and I was walking around the neighborhood with music and it was like, it was the shizzle. It really was. It was the coolest thing. I had this soundtrack to my life going in my head as I was walking around my neighborhood, going to friend's house and all that. And so then we come to 1979. It was what, July that the Walkman was actually announced as the Walkman. Technically, it was the TPSL2. Sony was really good with naming back then. Didn't I read that they marketed it in the United States as something other than the Walkman? It was like 
the soundscape or the sound traveler or had some kind of name like that. So the Walkman came out in 1979 in Japan, and it took a while to get to get to the U.S. And it was June of 1980 when it hit the U.S. And they used the name The Soundabout. They didn't use the name Walkman because they were really unsure about it. The, the actual name of the first device was the TPSL2. It was pretty much the shape and size of the Walkman that we were familiar with. And this was miniaturized a bit over the years, but not much because it had to be bigger than a cassette. So I remember when this came out, I had already had my Pressman, but when this came out, this was the summer of 1980 in New York. And by the fall, you were seeing people all over the place with these things. And if you remember, the, the cheap headphones they had had orange ear pads, which coincidentally matched the little orange button on the top of the device. Orange. I came to dislike that orange color because I didn't have a set. Uh, I, remember, I remember thinking that. Yeah, there were, there were many portable cassette players the first one I ever saw at my house was like in 1970. My father bought a Bell & Howell portable cassette deck, ostensibly for, you know, for my mother to record while she practiced cello and she could listen to it back. And, and obviously just to have the technology in the house. We had a stereo cassette deck already in the house. That was a thing. But, and you had a woolen sack, which wasn't entirely portable. Right. If anyone doesn't know what a woolen sack is, my father had one too. I'll put a link in the show notes. You can look it up. It was the size of almost a sewing machine. It yeah. was really heavy. Yeah. So we did a lot of audio stuff. And I remember I would use this portable. This was the portable cassette deck that my brothers and I destroyed. It was always around the house. But we were very familiar with portable audio by then. And we, I used it to record television shows and musical television shows and kept the cassettes for years. But it was mono and it wasn't stereo and it wasn't high quality. But having a Walkman type device, it just, it, I couldn't justify getting one. I did not have a portable cassette deck until many years later, early 80s. Yeah, I had a number of different models. And there was a particular job that I was doing in New York. The last year I was there, so this is 1983, 1984, I was doing research for a company that was in Chapter 11 bankruptcy. So I was going to the courthouse a lot. I was doing financial reconciliation. So I would carry that around with me when I was doing my work. When I did leave for France, I wanted to get something new because I was going to be traveling and I wanted to get something smaller and ended up buying an Iowa. I'm not sure exactly which model it was. I'll look and see if I can find it and put it in the show notes. It was one of the most compact I could find. And that was why, because I really needed to downsize as much as possible. Iowa was one of the brands. I'm trying to think. Panasonic used to uh, had also several, uh, a line of them. Well, Philips, as you yeah. mentioned, was very big on yeah. that. Well, Philips invented the cassette format. Yeah. Well, we didn't have a lot of audio brands that were doing portable audio back then. Right. I, I don't recall brands like, Marantz and Sansui making portable audio. No. There were just a few companies that had the miniaturized technology uh, or that had the, the patents intellectual property to be able to do this. Well, it's also, like you said, even Sony was a bit cautious about, should we even release this in the United States? Because the United States, they're like big. Well, so the, here's the paradox, because this was also the period of the boombox. Mid to late 1970s in New York, you'd see people lugging these boom boxes on their shoulders really loud or they'd be standing around on street corners. And obviously, to, to use a euphemism, the boom box was mostly for people listening to urban music, early hip hop, rap, etc. But not entirely. The first portable cassette deck I owned was a boom box. And I carried it with me on the train, and on the bus. But then again, I liked being 
the center of attention. I mean, I had this long black overcoat with <laughs> with punky pins on it and the and the stupid haircut. And here I am carrying around. Oh, like John Cusack in that yeah, film. Yeah, very much like that. <laughs> so I mean, I didn't mind carrying a cool looking boombox around with a set of headphones on at the time. But that was the first portable I owned. I I still could not justify owning a smaller handheld device. Part of the reason was, one, I was in college, but then my first job after college was working at a radio station, and I only lived a block away from the radio station. <laughs> so I was either listening to music at the radio station or listening to music at home. There was no need for portable music unless I was taking a bus or a train, in which case I figured, well, I really I really want a nice audio system with me when I'm traveling like that. So that's why I bought the Boomba. But did you plug headphones into it when you were on the train? Yeah. yeah okay. Yeah, I plugged headphones in, sure. Yeah, it's kind of you're carrying of a suitcase. Yeah, you know, it's kind of looks stupid. You're sitting there with the thing in your lap trying to read the New York Times, and it's like you <laughs> look like a moron. But, yeah, that's what I did. So parallel to the Walkman is the rise of the cassette tape. And this was huge. I mean, this was such a big deal because no longer did we have to worry about scratching records. We were able to home tape. Remember the slogan, home taping is killing music? We were able to take our own records, put them on tape, and listen to them on the road. And that was you know, young people today, they can't imagine how much of a revolution this was. The cassette went from anecdotal, because as you said, you had a cassette player in your house. It went from anecdotal for people to record things at home or musicians to the thing that everyone was buying. You could you could go into any record or electronic store and buy these packs of 10 cassettes and you wanted to get the CRO2 cassettes, not the ferrous oxide cassettes because they were better and, you know, different lengths, what, 30, 60, 90 minutes, even 120. Oh, those were bad. The 120s were bad because they were thinner. The 90 was optimal because you could usually get an album on each side. Right. The the, the rumors were that a lot of the a lot of these cassette manufacturers were reusing computer tape well, what we used to call computer tape, um, but, you know, those big uh, reels of, of computer storage stuff. And uh, I, I don't know if that's true or not. That doesn't seem to make a lot of sense. But the stuff was, the 120 minute were very, very thin. I mean, I can still see broken cassettes on the road because people yeah. just chuck them out of their car because the thing just stretched or broke or whatever. Like you said, ultimately, it's like a 90 minute or a 60 minute cassette was ideal. Although when I worked in radio, we had we had 10-minute cassettes, 5-minute cassettes, 90-second cassettes because we would use them to demonstrate commercials or or little bits of of audio that we had produced. So we had cassettes all over the place at the radio station. There were cassettes everywhere. There were looping cassettes. I remember I had a 6-minute looping cassette and I really loved Harold Budd's song Children on the Hill and I mentioned this as an extract pick a year ago or so. And I put it on, it's about four and a half minutes or 450 or something. And I put it on to this looping cassette so I could play it over and over with a bit of silence in between, but I kept playing it as background music. You know, the early repeat button before the CD. You mentioned though the car, that's another big deal about the cassette because we had gone from eight track kachunk tapes in cars to all of a sudden having cassettes where you could get a whole album on one side. If you had a good cassette recorder, it had auto reverse, so you wouldn't even have to take the tape out and turn it That's over. Right. I forgot um, about that. It, yeah, oh, that was a big yeah. deal. And and <laughs> everyone who had cassette tapes made sure to have a pencil handy. Yep. Because you had to yep. be able to move the uh, to reels. Rewind. Yeah. Yep. Sometimes if the tape got messed up, you had to turn the reels and the pencil having six sides fit very well inside the spindle of the reel. 
young people today what they're missing out on. <laughs> it's like when you used to put a quarter on top of your tone arm to play a record that had scratches on it. Or a penny. Well, Maybe you needed a quarter, but I only needed a penny. <laughs> it depended on the record sometimes. Yeah. The cassette also introduced, was also part and parcel of the fitness craze. Because now that people had audio with them, they could leave the house, go jogging, exercise, that sort of thing. And I don't know how, you know, the Jane Fonda uh, look always included a, a cassette or some kind of music player on your arm or on your belt. No, I guess they wouldn't have it on your arm. They'd put it on the belt. But I don't know how many portable cassette players all featured. And you can attach it to your belt. And so you would see, you would see the young woman with the, with the 1980s perm, the headband, and the headphones with the orange earpieces on top. Yeah, it's true. They called it jogging back then. Now we call it running. But jogging was a big deal. So another thing about the cassette is we started seeing original cassette releases because initially the cassette, we had eight track releases, albums that were on LP and eight track. And then the cassette, it didn't really, once the Walkman came, record stores started doing it, dropped the eight track. But in some cases, cassette releases existed that weren't exactly available in other forms. And I was remembering a couple of things. I had some live cassettes by... Cabaret Voltaire, Theater of Hate, Killing Joke. These were things that were sold as cassettes. Uh, they weren't bootlegs. They were real releases. But it was cheaper for a band to dub a cassette, even a couple hundred cassettes, than it was to press an album. And sometimes I'd go to concerts downtown in New York, and the band would be selling a cassette for five bucks, and you'd buy a cassette. Yeah, that was um, a cheap and easy way to get a lot of things out Self-recording, I mean, home taping, home recording wasn't just recording other people's albums. It was also, you know, you're, you could finally get a cheap four-track or two tra even two-track cassette or two cassette decks and do multi-tracking yourself at home. For the first time, that was really, really possible. Nobody could afford a reel-to-reel -reel deck, but these four-track cassette decks that started showing up in the uh, mid to late 80s were incredible. I owned two or three of them myself. I just thought they were fantastic. Tascam made them. Uh, uh, Yamaha made a few of them. Uh, really, and that also so that brought the uh, the home taping to another level. You yeah. weren't recording other people's things; you recording, yeah, yeah. you are recording your stuff. Yeah. So I looked up and found a few curiosities. In order to pick a next track pick, which is I'm going to mention at the end of the show, which was a cassette only release, I was trying to remember some of the cassettes that I had that were different. And the first thing that came to mind was Laurie Anderson's "Oh Superman," more than eight minutes long. It was too long to be a single. And it became a sort of, what would you call it, sleeper hit. It got really popular in the UK, and then it came to the US. And so it was O Superman on the first side and Walk the Dog on the second side. And if you don't know Laurie Anderson, this quirky performance artist who was pretty much what we would call a downtown performance artist in New York City until O Superman came out and she signed a seven album deal with Warner Brothers. And, you know, she became a big deal. Mostly that song is just the loop of, I mean, oh, Superman! Yeah, we not we might get we might get a copyright violation <laughs> there, but she sings with vocorders, and she yeah. has in in her performances she used a a tape bow violin. So the violin had a a tape head, and she would put a recorded tape on it and play it slow and fast and all. She did this really big performance called United States Live, and Oh Superman was a song from that her first album, Big Science, was 
songs from that. But the, the whole performance was in the Brooklyn Academy of Music in early 1983. I was able to attend it. It was over two nights. It's about eight hours long. I'll put a link in the show notes to it on Apple Music. The recording is about four and a half hours. According to Wikipedia, the recording is the musical parts because there are also visual interludes throughout the whole thing. It was a fascinating spectacle. She had a lot of cute ideas and aphorisms, but over the long haul, it just, I felt that I was in the presence of an event when I saw this because it was just performed a couple of times, but it was certainly not a lasting event. Now I found something interesting because I remember I had a number of cassettes that were one plus one. Do you remember these? One plus one. One plus one. And I'm looking at Black Uhuru's Red, which I had on cassette. And the description, I'm looking on Discogs, link in the show notes. The description of the one plus one element is, the complete album is on side one, side A. It is also on this side, side B. But if you prefer to record your own program on this side, just record it in the normal way and our recording will be automatically erased. One plus one, one side what you like, one side whatever you like. <laughs> so it's essentially a pre-recorded tape that can also serve as a blank tape. Well, any pre you could tape over any pre-recorded tape, yeah. So if you remember, cassettes had those little tabs and if you push the tabs out in the corners, then you couldn't record over it. So presumably this had a tab on one side and not on the other side, but you could just put scotch tape over it and re record over it. You know, oh, you could take a piece of paper, stick it in your mouth, gum it up, stick it in there. You're you're done. Yeah, that's You too. don't even have to use tape. It's like if you had a Barry Manilow cassette and you wanted to put something yeah. good on it, you would do that. Oh, well, at the radio station, we recycled these promo tapes all the time. Yeah. All the time. I mean, we got boxes of free cassettes from bands that were worthless. And so you just recycle the tapes for an air check tape. You know, if you're going to record yourself, you just say, hey, you got any of that Jimmy Buffett stuff? Uh, tape? I, Give me a good I can't believe you just said that name because that came up the other day. I was looking at IMDb for a certain actor who's in a new film and Jimmy Buffett's in the movie. And I'm like, I told my partner, you know who Jimmy Buffett is? No, <laughs> I did not want to get into that earworm. Okay. Anyway, go on. Reusing cassettes was it was a typical thing. You did it all the time. I'm 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 sick and tired of that Bruce Springsteen record. I think I'll put something else on it. Yeah, but then you can't get the Bruce Springsteen record back. Well, that's yeah, that's true. I guess there were some decisions that had to be made. If you were, I mean, if you're going to talk about managing a cassette tape library, and I knew guys that did this sort of thing. I didn't do it so much, but you know, people recorded mixtapes all the time on cassette. I never understood the. I think I've mentioned this before. I never understood the point of making a mixtape because after you made it, you've already heard it. So why do you want to hear it again? Because you had to sit there live and do it. It was a playlist, so you could play yeah. it over and over. Or it was. But something, I have the same problem with playlists now. Something you would give to a significant other, someone you were wooing, you know, yeah. in high fidelity in the novel and in the film with John Cusack, he would make these mixtapes for his girlfriends. I don't pers I personally don't think that any girl ever appreciated getting a mixtape. It was like. <laughs> <laughs> it's nice that he gave me a mixtape, but I'm never going to listen to this, you know. Even though you might have poured your heart and soul into making this mixtape, no one was ever going to listen to it with the same romantic fervor that no, you did. No, I, I never actually made mixtapes, but I did dub my records onto cassettes so I could listen to them when I was out and about. Portably, sure. Yeah. yeah. But then you, later you would say, well, I don't need this cassette again. I'll reuse it. I mean, how often did you do that? It's like, I can't afford to go out and buy blank cassettes. I've got to, I've got to well, recycle them. often enough, if I had the LP, then I would put something else on it and, you know, not worry because I could re-tape it again from the LP if I wanted to. 
But another good thing about the cassette is you could play it and I could plug my Pressman into a stereo and then I could get it without having to keep playing the LP and all of the hassles that that entails. Well, it's portable. You could carry, you know, the thing is you could put five cassettes in your pocket. It wouldn't really be that troublesome. You could go a whole day with five or six records, I think. I mean, now it's amazing that you can get 50 million tracks, but at the time, having five albums in your pocket was a pretty good deal. <laughs> but even just having one in your pocket yeah. was a good oh, deal. Sure. I remember sure. I worked with this guy. I worked in finance for a few years. I, I worked at Two Penn Plaza. This is the building over Madison Square Garden. And there was this guy I worked with. He was a bit strange, and he would like listen to French opera on his Walkman with big, big headphones, like studio-sized headphones, not like little portable ones. And... They allowed him to do this at work, and he would just be, you know, bouncing his head while he was doing his work, adding up his numbers and all. So I came up with a couple of next tracks, and I picked one, which is a cassette-only release. And after I bought the LP of this record, I had to buy the cassette release. It's Faith by The Cure. The B-side of the cassette has a 30-minute track called Carnage Visors, which was a soundtrack for an animated film that The Cure was playing on the concert tour for Faith. And it, I remember it's a pretty boring animated film. It was just little stick figures dancing around. And in some ways, they might have done this so they didn't have to have an opening band. So you don't have to have all the time to change the equipment and people maybe like the opening band better than you. Because this was like... Maybe not The Cure's first tour, but one of their first tours. And I just love this piece of music. I'll put a link in the show notes to Apple Music. You can buy it on CD now. The CD version of Faith includes it. I would listen to this over and over and over. It was like, because it was an instrumental, almost 30 minutes long. And I would just listen to this when I was walking around. Did a lot of walking back there since I didn't have a car. And I liked walking. And rather than spend 75 cents on a bus to get home, I would walk and listen to this music. So I listened to this a couple of weeks ago, even before we were thinking of doing this episode. I was reminded, this is just, it's just an ambient, you know, fun piece of music. Okay, not fun, because The Cure's Faith is not their fun period, but it is quite a good piece of music. What about you? Did you come up with anything cassette specific? I could tell you the cassettes I used to listen to, but I don't think that's very interesting. Actually, I came across something which I, I want to get off my, get off my list. So it doesn't have anything to do with cassettes, although I'm sure cassettes of this album do exist. I'm not a big Led Zeppelin fan, really. I mean, I'm familiar with most of their music, and I think the only record I owned by them for years was Four, which is the Stairway to Heaven album. And the, I, didn't, I didn't buy it for Stairway to Heaven. I bought it because I like Black Dog and Rock and Roll on side one. So I didn't listen to a lot of Led Zeppelin. And when um, a radio station in Providence switched to playing hard rock, you started hearing more Led Zeppelin. It was their core library. And I started hearing more songs from Physical Graffiti. Eventually, Physical Graffiti became my favorite Led Zeppelin album. I still don't own it, but whenever I hear a song from it, I go, ah, yes, Every, everything on this record is great. It was originally intended to be a single album, but they recorded too much. So it turned into a three-sided album, and what they decided to do is grab a few tracks from the previous three albums that didn't make those albums and put them on Physical Graffiti. I always wondered why Houses of the Holy was on Physical Graffiti and was not the title track to Houses of the Holy, and it's because they rejected it for Houses of the Holy, which who knows why. Why did they name it Houses of the Holy if it didn't have that track? 
Exactly. So who knows? I, I suppose the answer is in Hammer of the Gods, which I'm not going to reread. That's, that's actually one of the reasons why I don't particularly care for Led Zeppelin that much. But anyway, Physical Graffiti is my favorite because I really like the sound of the rock stuff. This is the album that has Kashmir on it, their Indian-influenced in, song. The Rover, which my wife reminded me of the other day, is like a, a really great song. Custard Pie. Uh, everything on this record is just really good and really, as far as I'm concerned, really good, solid Led Zeppelin. Any other album I can't listen to all the way through, but this one is just delicious. So this is my next track, Physical Graffiti from Led Zeppelin. You know, I was never a Led Zeppelin fan. I did, of course, like everyone playing acoustic guitar, learn Stairway to Heaven, because that intro is really quite easy. But I never owned a Led Zeppelin album back in the day. I did know a lot of the songs that got airplay, and people I knew had cassettes that they had taped of their Led Zeppelin albums. And I went to see The Song Remains the Same. Oh, sure. That was summer of 1977 when that came out. And I found the band even more pretentious visually than musically. Yeah. Yeah, that's kind of how I felt about them as well. It's like, come on, you guys are, all you're doing is old blues songs. Yeah, and and that bit with the with the cello or violin bow is like 18 minutes in the film with the the funny hobbity video Mountain stuff. Mountain climbing yeah, and stuff. That yeah, that was just so, never, never got into it. But I do appreciate the sound. I don't think I've ever listened to all of Physical Graffiti. Maybe I'll do it this week. It's quite good. It's really quite good. It's very solid. It's it's. Everything after Physical Graffiti, I don't particularly care for. And everything before Physical Graffiti is hit or miss as far as I'm concerned. So this is, this is the one for me. And it's your next track. This was episode number 154 of The Next Track. Thanks for listening. Your comments are welcome. You can start or join a conversation on this episode's show page at our website. You'll also find links to some of the things we talked about in the show notes for this episode. Just visit thenexttrack.com. If you like the show, we'd appreciate it if you gave us a rating or a review wherever you get your podcasts. And if you can't leave a review, recommend us to your family and your friends. I'm Doug Adams, and for Kirk McElhern, thanks again. We'll talk to you next time.